Welcome to Tech Kitchen Talks, episode 10. In this episode, Dave from Silicon Valley and myself, Glyn from London, discuss is employee performance really decreasing? What makes developers unhappy? And other items that have caught our attention this week. If you would like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi again, Dave. Hey, Glenn, great to see you. Great to see you too. So uh, this week, first uh, question I'd like to raise to you is, is employee performance really decreasing? As you've probably seen in the news, uh, the Google CEO coming out and telling employees productivity and focus must improve. Mark Zuckerberg telling his staff that he's going to up everyone's performance goals to get rid of employees that shouldn't be there anymore. I've seen a few other cases of this where big CEOs are just complaining about the overall output of their organization. Do you think this is actually an issue with employees not performing anymore? No, I don't. I'm fresh off vacation. I was all happy, but let's get back to some good old-fashioned ranting about big tech, as I love to do. There's no way that employee performance is the issue and a problem that needs to be fixed. These are the same uh, companies sending this message that just spend years and years trying to attract and retain people with free lunches and gyms and massages. Nobody was talking about it then. Suddenly, performance is an issue. I think that is bullshit. We're hearing that from these big tech companies that are facing massive headwinds right now. I mean, no matter how we quantify it, things aren't looking good. The economy is not steady. There's all kinds of regulations going around that are affecting Facebook and Instagram. Consumer sentiment is not great for some of these companies. COVID has made things weird. So no, I think these are different ways that companies are attempting to preemptively downsize and are just looking for ways to soften that message. So no, I think employee performance is just fine. So finding a scapegoat, just to, yeah, just to point the finger at the performance piece as a reason why they've got rid of 10, 20% of their staff. Yes. Don't you think? Okay. So originally, yes, that was my thought, but I've just been seeing more and more cases. One of the things that have been shared quite a lot on social media at the moment is this Reddit post from a guy that, that submitted, I did nothing today. What should I say and stand up tomorrow? And it's horrific reading that post where this is a developer that literally just comes out and says, oh yeah, I just watched movies all day. I did no work whatsoever. And everyone else going, oh yeah, you know, I've done the same thing. So really negative view on their work and obviously wanting to make an impact in their business. And obviously that that stings when you see that type of attitude from current developers in the industry. That's a good point. And actually, now that you mention it, we could say that there is definitely more of an antagonistic feeling from employees to employers than we've seen in a little while. There's the great resignation. People are more demanding. But I'm not sure that's really happening at Facebook and Google Tesla and some of these big companies. I think people are still generally doing a good job. But it is scary when you see a Reddit post. There's also a subreddit that maybe you told me about it where people are actually working two jobs at the same time and looking for advice on how to navigate that. That's that's a thing now. Yeah, that was at the start of the pandemic. Yeah, where there were people doing that, doing two jobs for all the fan companies and getting paid ridiculous sums of money. And they just did four hours on each and they were able to get away with it for a while. Yeah, that's amazing. So, okay, I, I, I take your point that there is some bad behavior going on in the employee world. I'll still say that 90% of this are tech companies trying to downsize in order to protect themselves from this uh, shaky economy. 
And I'm looking at it kind of as a, it's like a thought experiment or it's a leadership experiment, looking at how all these different tech leaders navigate it. Because even if employees are not as easy to deal with as they were three years ago, this is tightening of belts. It just has to be, in my view. And if you look at how the different companies are navigating it, they're really different. In Facebook, getting into some good ranting, you know, Zuckerberg, he's never been great at the mic. You know, he, he's not really great on camera. But this was really tragic. There was a lot of video going around of him uh, giving a presentation to all the employees, talking about how they're going to turn up the heat a little bit. And he made some comment about how people who aren't performing well are going to self-select out of the company. And it was just very rough. It was sort of a horribly delivered message like, hey, things are bad and we're going to turn up the heat and it's going to turn into Survivor Island around here. Not great for morale, but they have their first ever decline in revenue. Then we have uh, Tesla. Elon Musk, not too long ago, made a similar statement saying that he had, uh, I think he said, I have a really bad, super bad feeling about the economy. So we're going to reduce our workforce as a result. And I thought that was actually much more honest. I mean, there's something, I'm not an Elon Musk fan, as you know, but he does have that charismatic kind of honesty in some uh, ways. And that was better. At least he's not blaming the workforce and just saying, hey, we're going to do layoffs because the times are tough. The really interesting one was what they did at Google, where they're trying to take a more kind of thoughtful, delicate view. And they're doing the simplicity sprint. Did you hear about this one? Yeah, I saw it in the article where they were trying to allocate time to see how they could optimize their performance as a team and as an organization. What do you think? It's a great idea. This is the whole purpose of uh, the 20% time that was originally in place, or what do they call it? Uh, like, uh, was it like a delivery day or something like that, where in 24 hours, they're supposed to produce some result, which is obviously be beneficial to the organization. Yeah, FedEx day, I think is what they called them. That's it. I like it because I think everyone knows, certainly at Google, that this is not a great time to be Google, even though they're still growing, everything is okay, but times are tough. So they are looking to sharpen their workforce and get rid of some fat, tighten the belt. But doing it this way is, you know, at face value, it's like saying, we want to hear from you. Help us save the company. It's inclusive. That's very nice. But we also know that it's a little bit of a death match. It's like, hey, save your own job, right? There's probably going to be layoffs or we're going to stop growing at the very least. So this is a chance for you to have a voice and get involved and show that you've got some energy and some, uh, you know, some initiative and show your value because we all know what's coming. And I kind of like it. I think Google sort of wins for best way of handling the idea of workforce reduction without being a dick uh, like Zuckerberg was. So I like it. And something actually might come out of the simplicity sprint. And I think a lot of people will ignore it. They're cynical. And some of these people may not be around in a year. Uh, other people will really step up to the plate and they will probably get some legitimate uh, focus or efficiency or better product direction out of it. So I think, I think COVID wins this exercise of how do we handle this? Blaming it on employee efficiency, I think, stinks. What about COVID, though? You mentioned that employees are ill-behaved. Well, okay, so I think I think there's there's always cases of ill-behaved employees and you know essentially I think with the remote working environment that's come in it's allowed those people to hide longer away and not be noticed in the office it's very you know you can still be in the office and do nothing all day. 
or you know potentially you've been working really hard and you need to take a bit more of a rest break you know to be able to you know hit the next day harder and i think that one of the examples i think i saw for meta with zuckerberg was that he's he was seeing struggles of trying to get people in a meeting room together or just into a meeting even if it's virtual and obviously that affects the company's productivity so i think that potentially the remote workforce piece is starting to have an impact and the people that are dragging their heels is making it bad for everyone. You know, this is why we can't have nice things. So therefore, you know, for me, I'm much more productive at home because I don't get the distractions. But when I'm in the office, you've got people talking. You know, you, it's nice to have a hybrid approach, which is what I do at the moment. But at home is when I get the real work done. Normally, it's between like six and nine o'clock at night when I get the real work done because I'm not getting anyone slacking me or emailing me that needs my attention either. So I think the issue is, again, it's a management level of even if you're remote and you have autonomy, higher autonomy doesn't actually mean lower accountability. And this is where I think the performance issues are actually coming up. They're not being held to account for their output. So, you know, the whole reason of a remote workforce, and it shouldn't matter, is that you're still accountable for the work you're supposed to produce. And I don't care when you do it, how you do it, as long as it gets done. And if that's not in place, then people can hide behind, you know, other people or other processes inside the organization and other developers will see that and obviously be demotivated by the fact that they're working their butt off and someone else in the organization is not. So again, I think this does actually come to the management level where they there does need to be improvement because a lot of managers haven't been experienced in working in this type of way. And for the last two years, we slowly started to see the outcome of this where junior developers and you know people that are less experienced in the industry don't know how to work in a standard environment anymore so therefore they don't have accountability or know what the expectations are from the organization yeah i see it i think you're right and things have just gotten weird in general yeah i don't think you're wrong i still think companies are still utilizing this for their own benefits but i do think there's an aspect of this that hasn't been addressed inside uh, the employment sector as a whole not just the tech community yeah, and maybe COVID just made everything go berserk. Like, I also kind of fear the office now. I used to be okay working in the office, well, 20 years ago, because it was quieter. Uh, now, when I go to the office, I expect to get nothing done. It's just interruptions and people chatting. People are jumping around. There's the great resignation, people doing two jobs. There's a lot of, like, I want what's coming to me. Employees are emboldened. So why not? Maybe the employer should say, hey, this is COVID for us, too. You know, screw you guys. We're downsizing. Maybe it's just a, a less stable, more chaotic workplace in general. And everybody is getting weird and changing things and doing whatever they want. Uh, it feels more Wild West than in a long time. In the end, I still think it's just money. But yeah, COVID really has changed the, the game. There's a lot more freestyle thinking <laughs> on both sides of the table now than ever before. That's for sure. I mean, this is actually quite comfortably moves into the next topic, which is what actually makes developers unhappy or happy. Uh, there was a survey going around from, I think it was one of the, one of the Substack pages, where they did a large survey with over 2,000 developers. And they identified that what made developers unhappy, technical factors were like 788 from the 2,000, and processes was what made developers unhappy, like 544 of them. And like the top three items that made developers unhappy was being stuck in problem solving, time pressure, and bad code quality or coding practices inside the organization. So I, I thought this would be an interesting topic to discuss. What do you think makes developers happy or unhappy, Dave? Before I give my view on this survey, which I think is a little bit rubbish. 
I also was not that impressed with the paper, although I, I didn't really get into it that deeply and looking at the way it was formed and all of that. But it looks like a, a shit study to me. I didn't really understand how they're correlating. Things that are happening at work, what happens in the life of a developer? There's shifting requirements, technical debt, interruptions, unrealistic deadlines, all that. And then there's being happy. And do those things correlate? Does it mean that if there's a lot of technical debt and you're not happy, is it because of the technical debt? Is it a causal relationship? It seemed very mushy to me. But I didn't really agree in my observation, in my career, that these are uh, the problems. I do think that there's a lot of bias in the way that people answer. You got people that are generally working hard and paying a lot or being paid a lot. And software development can be very, very stressful, especially if you're working for, for clients or at a startup. There's a lot happening. Uh, it's never easy. There is sometimes pressure to say that you're enjoying these difficulties, you know, uh, learning from my failure and I'm learning from these challenges and putting a your happy face on it. There's sometimes pressure to be unhappy. You know, a lot of people are just complaining about their careers right now, always talking about jumping. I just think software developers are bad self-reporters. And I think that these are incorrect. What I think is really happening is that problem solving and time pressure, those are challenging things. But it's the a kind of teamwork and sense of purpose and understanding what you are doing, uh, why you're doing it, and that it is some kind of a meaningful push towards a meaningful goal that's being done in a thoughtful way. And developers can handle anything. And they wouldn't be so unhappy about those things if they knew that they were doing it under better circumstances as part of a team. Did that answer your question? I can't remember what you asked me. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm interested to see what, what you believe makes developers happy or unhappy. And yeah, as I was reading this, first thing I think it shows is that developers are really bad at actually explaining what their problems are. This is why we need to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with everyone that reports to you. You can't just send around a survey and understand how they feel because they're really bad at articulating. You have to dig and dig and dig until you actually get the right information out of what it is. So, you know, going for these examples, being stuck in problem solving. So firstly, if you're a developer, this is your life. You know, essentially, it's like what, what that shouldn't be what makes you unhappy. This is what you live for. This is what developers need. If you can't find the answer of your first search with Stack Overflow, that means, oh, you've got an interesting problem to try and challenge yourself with now and try and do. This is why developers are up till two, three in the morning on their own personal projects trying to find where a semicolon's wrong. And yes, I've been one of those guys. <laughs> and it's infuriating at the time, but when you solve it, you just get that instant gratification. Yes, and it's 99% of a developer's job, like you said. They're not just writing code like a book. Exactly, it's not like you can say, oh, I'm a bricklayer, but I don't like the cement part. You know, it's like, this is the core part of the job that you're there to do. And the whole point of problem solving is the excitement with the job. If you're a coder got into this industry because of the money and you don't enjoy problem solving, I'm surprised that you're still in the industry. So it's a really weird answer they've given there. What I reckon it's probably is say, okay, maybe the answer asked a load of juniors and there was no support for them. So maybe the actual issue is there's no senior support to direct me in the right direction with the challenges that I face with my work. Or I don't understand the architecture and there's no one to bounce ideas around with and I work very independently. So being the very first one there, I think that's rubbish. So time pressure, again, who's been setting the estimations for this work? Most likely it's the developer that's doing the work. So therefore, if you've got time pressures, it means that you did a bad job at estimating the workload, which let's be honest, every developer does. 
even myself when I'm doing my own personal projects because I don't code officially anymore. But, you know, you always underestimate it and therefore this is your learning time to go, right, okay, next time I'm going to be aware of this and obviously make sure I'm more accurate with the way I estimate my code. And bad code quality or coding practices, this is, again, a very junior type answer I've seen before. I mean, yes, I know it can suck when you are dealing with spaghetti code or complex system that's been around for a while, but you're not going to find many jobs out there where you're going to have the perfect code base. So we know we've touched on this before that it's going to be very hard to do, to find a business that's so new and have been able to invest a lot into their development without having to worry about releasing code and actually getting revenue from this. So for me, the answers I would expect to be too much context switching, too many meetings that are taking me away from doing my day job. You know, I don't understand the the reason for the work that I'm doing. These are the type of answers I'd expect. So I get the impression this survey was just like a tick box exercise given to people. You tick what annoys you and it was posted back. So this is the reason why I've definitely got some digs around this survey here. And it's I don't think it was delved into deep enough to really understand the true cause of the developer's issues. One interesting book that I've read recently, I don't know if you've read it, Drive. I think it was David Pink, the author, something like that. Essentially, it's just it's talking about motivation of every of people, and essentially, as we you know, if you're getting you should be paid well. Outside of that, if money's no longer the issue, you need autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So autonomy is being able to do the work how you know when and where you want to. This is remote workforce, fantastic. People are starting to have that. Mastery is when you're getting good at your develop at what you do. So therefore, bad code calls your coding practices. This is you becoming a master of obviously solving these problems, cleaning up as you go and being stuck with problem solving. Absolutely, that's mastery. And then purpose is about what you're actually building. So obviously, if you work in the gambling space, then maybe you'll struggle to find your purpose there. But if you work in, you know, carbon neutral space, then maybe you will. Or, you know, you can find your purpose outside of your working environment. But this is what's supposed to be there to actually make developers happy. And the fact that these answers here actually touch on these subjects in the opposite direction just makes me feel that they are not the right answers and not the way to actually identify if a developer's unhappy or not. You can only get that by digging into further questioning in a one-on-one scenario where they feel safe to be able to talk about their challenges in a way where they understand that people are going to try and help them around them from that situation. Yeah, 100%. And I think you're kind of focusing on things like team structure and the environment and what it is they're working on. I think this is where the happiness comes from. I've seen developers plow through the sea of spaghetti code for months, but they were doing it because they worked at a startup and it was part of an acquisition and they all felt a sense of purpose and they just had to do it together. And it's no problem at all when people know what they're doing. The things that I see that really uh, bring negativity on a development team are things that are fixable and don't make sense to the developers. So when somebody says, we're gonna have these deadlines and we're these coding standards and we're gonna change the requirements all the time, or there's things that don't need to be from their own management. And they look at that and they think, well, this isn't a problem we can face together. This is a bad decision we're making together. And developers get frustrated about that. So if if you're writing bad code because of poor decisions made within your team, this is where unhappiness can come from. If there are bad deadlines coming at you from members of your own team, that can become really frustrating because they're fixable. Developers want to fix problems. They don't get frustrated with problems. That's what they do. They're problem solvers. So these kind of things erode at what you're talking about, about having shared purpose and teamwork. And I think that's where the, the answer lies. Stack Overflow did a study, a very recent study, 
looking at what developers claim makes them happy. And the number one thing was salary. Everybody likes money. The second one was productivity. And productivity was defined very interestingly. It was uh, being put into an environment where you were able to do your job effectively. And the number one thing on the list was to not be interrupted. And I think that's very important because typically developers are interrupted by members of their own organization or team. And the third one, strangely, was having a window, uh, like a visible window in their environment. But yeah, developers want to focus on the work. And I think they care less about what the work is. And they care a lot about what they are doing, who they're doing it with, and whether they're in a position to do it well. So yeah, I think this was a poorly formed study. And these are the wrong answers. What you just raised there from Stack Overflow, that is exactly what I would expect. Everybody wants to be good at their job and be productive and you feel better that you're valuable to the organization. You Nobody wants to do a bad job in most cases in any organization. So as long as you've got the ability to do that, that's fantastic. And the window thing, I do feel very sort of sorry for the poor developers that had to tick that box. It's nice to have a window. <laughs> it Definitely, you should, I would agree, it should be a human right for every developer to at least have a window. Yes. But maybe maybe Zuckerberg says, you know, that'll distract them. They'll be too busy looking at the birds instead of coding, so. I think we should start some kind of a foundation for developers to have windows. Windows for developers. Changing yeah. the world. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One window at a time. Yes. The taglines even write themselves. It's fantastic. Okay, then. So moving on then, Dave. So what has caught your attention this week? I saw a story in Wired that no one is playing these Netflix games that they're offering. Less than 1% of users reported ever having tried one of the games, and some incredibly low percentage of people responded that they even were aware of the games. Uh, it reminded me of a conversation you and I had had recently about product development and how everybody's moving around, especially the social media space, trying to do new things, finding new product channels and streams, getting into music and all of that. One of the examples was Netflix, getting into gaming and what a moonshot that was. This story got my attention, not because I'm surprised nobody's playing their games, but because I think people are beginning to now see that this is getting ridiculous. You can't just uh, pivot your way and completely change yourself from a media company to a gaming company and survive. These moonshot product things, I think, are generally not going to work. I think everybody uh, is starting to see that. It's in the news. People have a short kind of attention span for it. And maybe we won't see as much wild pivoting and everybody switching industries in order to survive as we had feared. So I'm happy about it. But did you say earlier that you actually had played the Netflix games? Yes. Yes. A couple of months ago when they did the whole marketing campaign and you could do this, it's like, okay, I'll give that a try. You still have to download it from the app store, I think. And then it, you know, it, it hooks to your Netflix app. So therefore that's how it validates you as a login. And uh, they're just standard games, you know, anything you can find free on the app store anyway. So there's nothing special to them. One was like a card game, you know, if they gave me some really, you know, amazing first player shooter game or something like that, that really sucked me in or, you know, did something completely different, then maybe it got me stuck. But, you know, I played it for a couple of days when I had some free time and then, yeah, they're still on my phone, but I just haven't opened them. You know, it's just, it's not something that I do. So yeah, I am what part of the 1% that's tried it. And it is a very weird pivot as an of an organization to try and move into a space like that where there's just so much competition. I don't know how you feel you've got an edge 
unless if you do come out with the latest Flappy Bird or, you know, whatever the equivalent is nowadays. Gaming especially, that's a tough business. So is TikTok going to be able to sell music subscriptions? I don't know. Why would they? I mean, Netflix can't sell games. Why? How arrogant is it of a company to think they can make a wild pivot like that with no strategy? I thought they'd at least do what all the game developers do and have a couple of uh, flagship games that are exclusive to them. But I think these moonshot product pivots are are not going to be going well. I mean, this is the first one we've seen that is a truly a spectacular failure, a newsworthy failure. And I think that is good because if Netflix isn't going to be able to hang on to their revenue, then so be it. And we can start consolidating and, and let the streaming space shift around and do what it needs to do. And we will just get through this market wildness as quickly as possible. So moonshot pivoting, I think, uh, stinks and is generally not going to work well. So that was why I was sort of happy. Not that I'm delighting in their failure, but I'm happy to see, let's get on with it and demonstrate that that does not work. Yeah, I mean, from, I love Netflix. And biggest issue for me is all the TV shows that I watched as a kid, they're not available on any streaming site. So I'd prefer them to spend their revenue getting these really, you know, happy days. That's an old American one. Why, why is that not any streaming service? I'm sure that would fill some space for some people. There's loads of these old TV shows about out there that could easily go into streaming services that old people like you and me would absolutely eat up. And, you know, not get rid of our subscription purely because it's got some of the things we loved when we were kids. Was the Fonz uh, big in the UK? Was that a big hit? It, it was. It was. Uh, leather jacket and the comb. So um... <laughs> to this day, I have my uh, prized Fonzie lunchbox. And I am pretty proud of that lunchbox. Wow. You're so American, Dave. <laughs> I, I got it actually just a few years ago. I always wanted one when I was a kid. And then I got, got one on eBay as like an old man. So it's sort of a sad story, but I have that lunchbox and I'm very proud of it. Excellent. Okay. And for my side, what caught my attention this week? Well, essentially over the last few months, a bit more of a sour note, uh, the strong US dollar is really affecting us here on the other side of the pond. If you've you know, been keeping track of this, the US dollar has been really, really strong against both the euro and the pound recently. And for organizations that, let's say, sell their products, you know, you build your product for the UK marketplace, you extend that into the US. A lot of cases, you know, you don't put anything complicated behind your platform. You just go, right, okay, it's £10 in the UK. What's the equivalent US dollars? Okay, $12. And you just fix the price and put it out there. And now, you know, suddenly that's no longer the same value because obviously things have been changing. So therefore, if you're an organization that is global and you have to convert and exchange all your pounds to dollars, you're taking a lot less money than what you were before. Uh, obviously, I've seen a big impact with our clients and with businesses that are, um, you know, US focused, but have good, strong UK revenue and European revenue. And obviously the conversion back to dollars is uh, killing them and obviously making it much harder for them to move through at this point. So um, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting to see that organizations do need to start thinking about you know, real-time exchange rate transfers for products that they sell, for subscriptions that they sell. They can't just rely on a stable dollar and pound. So therefore, the consistent, you know, small fluctuations don't matter. But when they start to become large, that's a big revenue breakdown for you as an organization. So therefore, you need to address that at times like this. Most of the time, it's not really been a big issue, but it definitely is one at the moment. So I can imagine more organizations having to relook at their finances and changing their pricing model due to the fact that the dollar is so strong. 
Yeah, lots of pain around this. And the economy in the States is so weird. People are talking about a recession, but inflation is very high. Unemployment is low and the dollar is strong. I don't know what's happening, but I guess it's better to be in the U.S. if the U.S. dollar is going to have this uh, you know, strength right now. But even here, it's causing a lot of issues because this affects all kinds of businesses that are selling products and services outside the U.S. Exporters are getting hit. It's causing the software economy to really get hot in South America and Mexico. Prices are getting wild there. And so it's kind of like the real estate market. It reaches a point where it's so hot that really nobody is benefiting. Nobody can keep up. And it's just overheated and a mess. And it is rough. Uh, we see the impact of it raising prices for software developers all over the world. And even in the U.S., we're kind of feeling that because when things heat up too much, our prices go up too, just not as much. So generally, I think it's a, a confusing thing. The U.S. dollar just seems to be uh, lodged into its position as the top currency. Every time we think it's going to weaken, it bounces back. Crypto cannot save us now, at least uh, maybe in the future. And I'm hoping it's going to cool down because I'm hearing from a lot of clients outside the U.S. that they are getting killed. We already have a very chaotic, overheated industry in the software world. I mean, it's a very efficient market. It's a global market. There's never enough developers. And they are in a position worldwide to command uh, very healthy rates. But we know what happens when they get too much, right? When developers are too much in demand, it brings a little chaos and it's not good for anybody. So here we go. It's going to get even worse. But it's good to be over here in the U.S. where at least we don't feel it as acutely. Uh, we feel it in the stock market, but our developer prices haven't really gone up. So at least there's that. You know, we get a, a laggy impact from it. Yeah, it's rough. Not good. Is there anything on this call that we've talked about that is good? Do we have any... Any positives? Mm, I'm trying to think of one. And Stack Overflow had a better survey, so there's a, there's a positive note to end on there. <laughs> developers deserve Windows. There we go. New title for the podcast, Dave. <laughs> yes. I've got a lovely window. Uh, I'm looking at my oak tree, and I'm feeling very lucky and grateful for my window. It really is important. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, great <laughs> talking to you this week, Dave. Always a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Do check us out at techkitchen.io and uh, join our Slack group. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>